This is Secure, hosted by Charles Latimer and presented by FinFit, a podcast empowering business leaders to build a financially stable and resilient workforce. Welcome to the first episode of season two of Secure, building a financially resilient workforce. I am your host, Charles Latimer. I am profoundly honored to be hosting Matt Ball, Vice President of Financial Health Network today, as we embark on really an extraordinary new journey, an intellectual journey, certainly for me, in bringing together just the the greatest thought leaders in the industry to help us connect the dots on financial well-being and healthcare and the very vast, complicated landscape that that represents. Um, There's no one better in the world to help us sort of identify that terrain, identify the sort of the, the maybe the research streams, the innovations that are happening out in the market and help us connect some of those deeply um, rooted sort of mileposts. And and so welcome, Matt Ball. Uh, thank you for being here. And I, if you wouldn't mind, I, I know your reputation precedes you, but I would love if you wouldn't mind just offering a little introduction and your background and how you've arrived here. Yeah, sure. Well, this is my second appearance. On this I know. Yeah, so I don't know if I'm the first return guest, but um, if I am, yeah. that's, that's in and of itself an honor. Well, I, I think we've actually established a tradition, right? So now uh, you, you you did the first episode of the first season. Now you're doing the first episode of the second season. Seriously, I mean, this is a tradition. Yeah, tradition. I can't, well, now I can't wait for the third season. <laughs> yeah, and we'll certainly have much to talk about <laughs> every year of the seasons because this is a there's no shortage of opportunities and challenge. And I think that's actually what has inspired me to make this my life's work. Um, Growing up, you know, in a very working class family in Colorado, I was the first person in my family to go to college. I was really fortunate to get an advanced degree. I'm a recovering lawyer, Uh, was in labor and employment lawyer for many years, Um, then worked in finance at Prudential Financial, and then really found my way over to the Financial Health Network, which is uh, 501c3 nonprofit whose mission is to improve financial health for all. And, you know, we really consider ourselves to be the leading authority on financial health. And the team that I'm a part of here and, and lead with some of my colleagues is really our focus on with the workplace, recognizing that the workplace is an area where tens of millions and vast majority of people in this country gain access to the financial benefits mm-hmm. that illuminate their financial lives. And uh, really seeing over the course of my career, just a tremendous opportunity that employers have to really improve the lives of their people. Um, and I think this is a really timely conversation that we're having today, not just because of the trajectory of where financial health is moving, some of the really interesting trends we've seen over the last several years, um, including what I think is one of the most important trends, which is workers just being completely fed up with the status quo in the workplace yeah. and really um, pushing back in important ways to try to regain some of the material benefits and some of the material um, things that used to be part and parcel of the workplace that really were eroded over the last 50 years and uh, are really starting to make a comeback in important ways. And I think that's important for important for us to sort of anchor here in addition to just the healthcare and mental health challenges that are also really impacting employers and employees. So excited to be here, Charles, excited as always to to connect with you and the FinFit team and um, happy to happy to go in whatever rabbit holes we decide to to go into today. Well, let, let, let's just jump into where where, where you started us, uh, we, which is, I mean, there's been this emergence of a you know uh, of the workforce sort of 
pushing back and sort of redefining the social contract between the employer and the employee. And, and, and I think that comes, uh, no, it's no accident that's coming post pandemic. And so there, there's a deep relationship, I think, between the, the, the residual mental health challenges that the workforce is experiencing post-pandemic and how that's all sorry. So can, can you kind of help us triangulate the relationship between financial well-being, mental health, and, and just the overall stability of the workforce? Sure. Um, well, I would certainly start by saying the mental health challenge predates the pandemic, as does the financial health challenge. Uh, I think both of those phenomena were accelerated through the pandemic mm -hmm. and continue, frankly, to accelerate. I think the recent CDC data on the mental health challenges, suicide rates, I don't know how you can look at that and not just be deeply depressed um, with the state of mental health in the United States, particularly um, across all populations, but especially amongst those that are the most vulnerable, which is where we continue to see some of the largest trends. I also think that you can't disentangle easily the financial health components from the mental health components. Certainly, there are some distinct areas, and we shouldn't be um, making any claims about one being the sole cause of the other and vice versa. I think that they interact in a really interesting ways. And certainly, the American Psychological Association has long reported on the number one source of stress for the U.S. population is financial stress. And that certainly, I think, is reflective of what's just happened in the workplace over the last 50 plus years. Really beginning in the 1970s, we saw the trend of productivity being untethered from wage growth. And so prior to the 1970s, as our economy generated more value, wages rose more or less in tandem with that. But really beginning in the 1970s and really accelerating through the 80s and 90s and into today, as our economy generated more value, worker wages stagnated. And at the same time, we saw things like healthcare, housing, college, childcare, the essential living components continue to increase at rates that far outpaced inflation. And so when you put all these together, you've got this sort of financial health morass that is rooted both in terms of how the economy is transformed, where much of the value goes to a relatively small number of individuals and workers feeling the brunt of that. Um, and really now starting to, I think, ask what is the bargain we want to have in our work lives. And I think part and parcel of that is people continuing to feel the strain and the mental health challenges because it's just so difficult in some regards um, to have a quality life, a life that parents had, that their grandparents had. And that's not to say that's the sole cause of what's happening with mental health. There are lots of other um, issues there, but I think you can't disconnect the sort of economic trajectory from the mental health trajectory and some of the parallels that we see uh, with regards to both in terms of the trend lines. It, it's both deeply ironic and disturbing when you look at that trend over time where, you know, with the, the full emergence of high deductible plans, yeah. uh, putting more financial stress on the workforce and, and that, that having a real material impact on just overall health and mental health. So, I mean, there's almost this sort of bizarre institutional hardwiring of not only dysfunction, but of, of sort of the, the exact opposite uh, outcome that the health industry is uh, undoubtedly 
working yeah. towards is sort of you know creating a bigger problem on the back end. And, and sort of how do you peel through all of that and, and, and make sense of it? And 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 who's sort of championing the 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 research of that, the understanding of the outcomes associated with that? I know you all are doing you know financial health networks, the gold standard. Of, of of this of this research and these uh, investigations. So can can you kind of help us connect the sort of dots of all of that and and, and who's kind of leading the charge in yeah. terms of? Well, no doubt there. You know, thinking about just the social determinants of health conversation, there's certainly a, a large and uh, excellent body of research that have long connected sort of economic circumstances and conditions to health outcomes, uh, accessibility to health services. That's all certainly part and parcel. I also think if you look at just some of the general trends related to mental health services, we have, as mental health challenges have risen, the number of mental health providers, the number of um, health plans that cover adequately mental health services has shrunk. And so we've sort of got a double whammy where we saw um, a rise in sort of episodic and chronic mental health conditions at a time when we have made decisions either in the private sector or certainly through public policy that have just diminished our capacity to address the mental health crisis effectively. And so I think what you have is you have this complex web of research happening in the public policy space. You've got really good research happening in the healthcare space. We've got the financial health space. And I think you're starting to see a far greater integration of trying to figure out how do these trends intersect with each other? Where, where are the causal vectors? Are there causal vectors? Um, and how do you start to pull those apart? So I think we, in some ways, like we've got really good research in isolation um, and we've got some research that's starting to overlap and understand the connections, but I'm not sure we've gotten deep enough into the research to say, here's where we see the biggest opportunity for interventions that would address this intersection of financial health and mental health. And that presumes that there is an intersection. And I also don't know if we know that um, with any certainty, uh, but I also go back to you know, some of the trends we've seen in, in a workplace context, you look at like disability claim data trends. So the Integrated Benefits Institute does really good work in this regard of sort of tracking disability claims data. And without question, mental health is rising. Um, and it's rising in interesting ways, right? It's anxiety, it's depression, it's substance abuse. Uh, and of course, we've seen lots of really good research around substance abuse being highly correlated to so-called deaths of despair meaning people just living in complete economic deprivation and that deprivation then leading to all sorts of poor outcomes, particularly for financially vulnerable populations. And so from my perspective, what we're really talking about is sort of a system that we're operating within, a workplace system, a healthcare system that um, is just not quite meeting the needs of the people. And, and so what you end up seeing now is a lot of attempts to try to, to address that but we, I think, really need to think about this from a systems perspective and not necessarily from a um, point in time, you know, discrete and, you know, intervention. It's really got to be thinking about how do we just reframe the bargain we make with regards to workers and the workplace? And how do we all start to reimagine how we should be delivering healthcare to people to give them access to the resources they need? hundred percent agree that this is a systems based challenge and opportunity, right? It, it's because all these vicious cycles, you see, see them all playing out all these negative unintended consequences. And it, it, how much of that challenge is just that, you know, from a data perspective, we, we've not done a very great 
job of having a multidisciplinary approach. It, it maybe the financial services data and healthcare data sit in such really by their very nature um, in, in very private silos. And and you know how, how do we begin to sort of what is there interesting work being done out there that are sort of you know eroding the membranes be, be, between yeah. those two ecosystems and. And, and and who's approaching this on some of like really clear like small systems based analysis and trying to understand cause and effect? Yeah, I mean, I think you're you you are certainly seeing some great academic work starting to percolate around this. And you know, I think of for example someone like a Carrie Leanna at the University of Pittsburgh. And you know, for Carrie, her framework is really rooted in this concept of financial precarity, which you know, just to sort of um, analogize it, it's, think of it in terms of financial stress and the deleterious effects financial stress has on health outcomes, on cognitive function, and you know some of her research relative to how material financial improvements in people's lives manifest in better outcomes across a number of vectors. And that body of research has been evolving, and certainly in the public health space, that research has been growing. And so I think what we're starting to see is some of that public health-based insight and research starting to morph and blend into a, a multidisciplinary sort of um, ecosystem to try to really understand how do we solve these challenges. And I think one of the one of the obstacles that we will consistently face is data, and data continues to be just a really hard hard nut to crack in this space. In part because data, as you noted, is captured in silos. And it's captured in combinations of sort of government data sets. Then you've got private industry data sets and employers have data all over the place. And so trying to sort of build a data set that can lead to those insights, I think, is one of the challenges. Now, certainly folks are working on this and there's some really good data, um, you know, public data and other sort of private data that you can leverage on that. But this to me is a real is a real opportunity to um, figure out how do we dive more deeply into these intersections of mental health and financial health. And again, I think you you said this earlier, it's hard to disentangle the cause and effect. In some ways, I think it's the way that I conceptualize it today is they're just mutually reinforcing. Um, and it's, 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 as though, um, it's as though what we really see here are that we've just got these set of factors that overlap. And so the question becomes, which threads are the easiest to pull? Which threads require different types of interventions? And how do we actually start to do some work in the market and in the the, the real world um, through the workplaces, through banks, through credit unions, through health centers, through health systems to try to start to put some evidence into the world about here's how the strings we can pull and here's some effects that we think we can have. Um, and again, I think this also bucks up against then just our status quo bias. And I think that continues to be another barrier. So data is a barrier, status quo bias is a barrier. Um, and I think that lots of smart people are working on this. And certainly we are, we are tackling these issues, but lots of other really smart, uh, well-intentioned organizations are doing this as well. Uh, I, I'm a continuous awe of, of just the real profound minds that are, are, are focused in this area and just doing really wonderful work. What, what strikes me is that you know, just to kind of go back, you know, at, at its inception, you know, the financial services industry was designed to serve those who had, uh, you know, extra income at the end of the month, you know, candidly, or, you know, need a place to put their money, <laughs> you know, and, and that has a long tail uh, of 
unintended consequences associated with even research methodologies. I mean, you know, just one of the big aha moments we had internally here this past year, just looking at how we're approaching this this problem set is that, you, you know, we, we've been asking our members to take financial health assessments like once every six months, you, you know, which is probably comes out of that whole planning framework mm-hmm. of, you know, re, the retirement planning framework where, you know, you, you, don't, you don't look at your portfolio every day, but yet financial stress happens every day. Yeah. And financial stress is quite fluid. And, you know, so, you know, we're really beginning to try to take a much more granular approach to financial health data, you know, internally and try to understand how that sort of lives almost as a daily basis, you know, and so that we can be more effective on intervention. And, and what I'm just curious also to hear is like, who's sort of like taking a butcher paper approach to say, you know what, there's so much residual bias that comes from how the financial services industry was, was, designed and candidly the healthcare system as it has arrived and it's sort of private model where the where the real stress has been put on the american worker yeah. from an expense perspective yeah you, you know who's taking just like a butcher paper you know paper approach and say we just need new research methodologies and absolute new approach to understand as you you know uh, Dr. Liana says, you know, the, that financial precarity and the impact it have on social determinants of health, or, or is that just kind of a new field that we're, you know, yeah. that financial health network is embarking on? Yeah, I'm, I'm loath to say it's a new field because I think there have been organizations yeah. working on these questions for decades. I think where where I approach it, and I think where financial health network are starting to do this is to say, research methodologies will continue to evolve, no doubt about it. But what we also need are some new mental models for business leaders. Um, and how do we help reframe the mental models that business leaders use to help them not only ask better questions, but to be more receptive to new insights. Um, and I think that's where, when we think about systems change and systems change models, we've got to really think about how do we reframe the way in which we talk about things like workers and the causes of mental health and the causes of financial precarity. Um, And then when we reframe that as opposed to, this is just about bootstraps, right? It's just about if you only had, which by the way, if you ever tried to pull yourself up by a bootstrap, it's actually physically impossible. It's like physics cannot solve that problem. And and if you go back and actually look at the history of that phrase, it was actually initially conceived as a um, sort of a joking, like put down for, you know, folks who thought that it was all about just sort of individual actions. And so I think what we've also got to continue to do is to say, we have to think about these things in new frameworks and with new mental models, because that will then reveal the answers to these questions and reveal the ways in which we want to move forward to do that. And I'm not sure that like more research necessarily is going to be the thing that sort of spurs that mental model. I think we've got to have folks that can translate the great existing research, identify places for more research, um, but also how do we translate this into new mental models? And how do we translate this into new ways of thinking about the workforce? Um, And you're starting, you know, I spend, as you know, Charles, if you follow me on LinkedIn, which I know you do, you know, I spent a lot of my time over the last several months, like just seeing headlines. I'm like, what are you talking about? And we consistently frame negative things that are happening as a moral failing of the individuals. So you think about all these phrases that have been put into our uh, 
you know, parlance, quiet quitting, um, you know, dead zone workers, uh, lazy girl jobs, all of these things that are often framed as moral failings of individuals, as opposed to, well, geez, people are just, I think, kind of recognizing that the bargain that's been struck to the workplace um, has been one where you have to work as hard as humanly possible so that a relatively small number of folks in the organization and the shareholders can make as much money as possible. Um, and in doing so, your jobs are not as secure as they once were. You're going to live in more economic uncertainty and precarity, but you should just be thankful that you've got these things. And so I think workers are increasingly sort of saying to those, hey, wait a second, COVID changed everything. <laughs> Um, you know, I, uh, it really forced a lot of people to reevaluate what's most important in their lives. And I think people are starting to say like, geez, what was I really doing working 80 hours a week, um, living paycheck to paycheck so that, you know, I see the, the, the economic wealth that my work has generated disproportionately go to a relatively small number of people. And I th actually think we underestimate the power of that sense and the increasing recognition that, yeah, that doesn't seem like the bargain that we really want. Yeah, um, create a whole new sense of agency. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know yeah. and you'll see these articles that are decrying, oh, drops in productivity. And when you dive into it, yeah, we have seen some dips in productivity. But when you look at some of the cross tabs in the data, it's like rather than the average worker working 10 hours and 37 minutes a day, they're working 10 hours a day. Right. And so just even when you think of that, it's like, oh, geez, we were actually in, a, in, a, in an environment where we felt that our only path to meaning, our only path to prosperity, our only path to uh, a sense of worth was to completely envelop ourselves in work. And of course, this, of course, biases for the white collar worker who tends to have a different environment as opposed to, geez, should I just be prioritizing things like job security, pay and benefits and see, my, see that the meaning in my life should come from external forces? Um, things like my community, things like my friends and family. Um, and this is why I also think you're seeing a real appetite for things like a four-day work week. Um, and, you know, the UK studies have been pretty remarkable of what they've shown in terms of people really starting to prioritize it. I can do my job well. The company can maintain profitability or in many cases increase their profitability as those UK studies showed. While I also have more time in my life to enjoy with my friends and family, to invest in my community. Uh, and so I think these are all the sort of tentacles that are out there now. Where it's going to wind up, I don't think anyone really knows. Mm -hmm. I don't think we can ignore those threads of like people are seeing how their decisions to prioritize things other than work are being framed oftentimes as negatives, which people naturally recoil at that. And then you're seeing this sort of appetite for, yeah, I want to prioritize pay, benefits, flexibility, and opportunities to enjoy things outside of the workplace. I don't need work to be my source of meaning. And as um, counterintuitive as that may sound to some of the listeners here, we can't ignore that. I think that's a real trend that we're starting to see in the workplace. Well, I, I, I'm really enamored by this whole reframing of the mental model, you know, around financial, the relationship between financial precarity, uh, mental health, health. I mean, it's quite a complex landscape but it seems to me, you know, we talk about systems-based approach where you have Senge's work of, of systems archetypes. You, you know, are, are there some sort of archetypes of mental models that we can kind of, 
you know, could you help us begin to frame some of those? Uh, yeah. it, it, maybe there's a full compendium at some point, but, yeah. you know, yeah. but, um, yeah, you know, help us kind of get started there. I mean, I just, cause yeah. I'm really in there, but I think it really, uh, that that's an exciting place to start. Yeah. It's very productive. Well, yeah. well, in some ways you see rhetorical overtures to the new mental models, right? So it's very rare for a company of any size to not have something like the following. Our workers are our most important asset. It's our one competitive advantage, right? Great. Love that. But then you also see workers who hear this, internalize that, but then they see companies making decisions that don't really seem to align with that. Um, and so there's a great body of emerging research and the Purpose Power Index has really put some of this stuff out there where if you ask corporate leaders, um, do your company's actions align with your values? And they would say, absolutely. Like overwhelming, they would say yes. You ask the rank and file workers, they say, no. Like, uh, at the end of the day, there is one stakeholder who gets prioritization over all other stakeholders. And despite whatever rhetorical flourishes may happen there, you know, at the end of the day, like we are, we feel as though we are a risk to be managed an expense to be cut. Um, and this is part of the reason why, by the way, I think you're seeing the largest organized labor movement uh, in my lifetime. We had over 200,000 um, workers join labor unions over the last year. And I think it's because people feel like the workplace is an area where they have some degree of control in which to drive the change they want to see in their lives. They're not getting it through the political sphere, at least not to a satisfactory level. Uh, they're struggling in their day-to-day -day lives. And the workplace is really emerging as a place where people are starting to exercise their disagreement and their disquiet. In the face of companies consistently saying, oh, you are a most important thing. And I think workers are saying, if that's really what you mean, prove it to me. <laughs> And, show me. and so in some ways, like that mental model of, and I'll shorthand this, of treating workers not as risks to be managed, but as human beings worthy of investment and dignity. And I think that is actually easy to say, much harder to action, given some of the incentives that, frankly, in good faith, I think business leaders really have to wrestle with. Like, I don't want to make this seem as though there's just a bunch of mush, you know, mustache twisting nefarious thinking. It's like we have just created an incentive structure based upon a mental model that the sole purpose of a business is simply to maximize its profit. And profits matter. You have to have profits. I'm not one of these folks that is critical of that. But if that comes at the sake of people's job security, if that comes at the sake of people's financial lives, I think we're seeing a real pushback against that sort of existing mental model. And we'll see if we can break through to a mental model where workers feel as though they have dignity, they have autonomy, um, and they feel as though they're more respected in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I hundred percent agree. There's no mustache twisting, yeah. but but there's a deep manipulation that has to be called out. <laughs> it, it is it, it is where you know, and I, I recently called it out in an article. It basically said, "How in the world do you survive a a company culture where where you have ownership and management referring to workforce as?" family. Yeah. And, and then in the midst of the pandemic, you, you fire 50% of your workforce. Yeah. And, and you increase your profits all at the same time. Yeah. I, I, and, and then, and then in the literally just in the, a very short term, come back and complain that folks aren't, you know, inspired to come back and work for you. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause you don't fire your family. You, you know, yeah. you, you don't wake up one day and say, Hey, Hey, little Susie. Hey, little Bobby. You know, it's been fun, you know, yeah. hit the bricks. You, you know, you yeah. just don't do it.
Yeah. And, and, and I, I think it's that sort of, I, I think what has lost um, its shelf life, hopefully for the American workforce is, is that sort of level of sort of um, poster worthy manipulation, you, you know, that could, you know, that you could distill a company culture down to a series of single words and then, and then have no capacity or real desire or investment strategy to lean into those statements yeah. as, as you, as you have historically put to me, which it resonates. Um so I, I don't know. I, at this point, I'm just ranting. But I, um, but yeah, I, I think part of it. Yeah. <laughs> see, this is what happens every time I get together with you. You get all fired I, I know up we're we're trouble. But, but I'll tell you what. But I'll tell you what. I mean, there are certainly. So there was a. I think it was a Fortune article. High. It was a CEO of a credit union, Randall Leach, I believe, who wrote just one of the most thoughtful commentaries I've seen. And his bank or credit union was one of the first uh, credit unions to um, be unionized in 40 years. And um, and he wrote a really thoughtful commentary saying, like, this is one form of worker empowerment, right? He wasn't saying that every workplace should be unionized. He wasn't saying that um, any of those things. What he was saying is, like, we believe in worker empowerment. And if this is the path that workers in his workplace wanted to take, he was going to meet that with good faith um, yeah. because he recognized that uh, listening to workers, their input, how they experience the workplace matters not just to um, the members they serve through their credit union, but matters to the lives of the people. And he, of course, was completely uh, versed in the statistics around the average compensation for tellers, um, including the fact that 31% of tellers based upon a $17 average wage qualify for um, you know, federal benefits or government benefits, and really recognizing that that simply is not aligned with the values of the financial institution he led, and so you are seeing also leaders starting to emerge that are really saying like, yeah, we really do believe in worker empowerment and it can take a multitude of forms. Um, but the reality is that I don't think we're going to see workers stopping this sort of drive to say, no, we want a different set of circumstances in our workplace. We think that um, we we should have a, you know, better say in terms of what happens in our daily work lives. We should have input in terms of how we can best help drive the business forward. Um, and it doesn't always have to be antagonistic between worker empowerment and leaders. In fact, I think the best companies find ways for those things to work in tandem, um, both in union and in non-union environments. I think all of those things are completely possible. And we have many examples of that happening. It, it it would it would sort of please me on some deeply ironic level that it, you know the nonprofit um, model could could actually trailblaze um, worker productivity innovations you know around this topic area because I I, I do think it in the same way that you know you know sort of reframing you know mental frameworks you know that you have to or mental models yet you have to sort of begin to separate things like income from financial health, you know, I, I also think we, we, our organizational models requires a whole series of decouplings of these sort of traditional frameworks that you, you know, these mental model frameworks that just got to be deconstructed a little bit. And I, I know that's a, a triggering word for people, but you know, I said it, I, I said deconstruct. Yeah, well, I said yeah. And again, I think it's, I think it's really, um, and again, I work at, a, I mean, I spent most of my career in corporate America. I mean, my first foray into 
the nonprofit world was when I joined the financial health network. And, you know, I think, um, I think one of the things I've learned during my time in corporate America is that they're just, there are great people in every organization. There's no doubt about it. There are great people in every organization, but you have to think about, um, you have to think about people in a more intentional way. And, you know, the companies that we see doing the best work in terms of addressing both the mental health and the financial health challenge of the workforce are places where leaders work very closely with the front lines. Uh, they don't reside in an office. They don't hide behind data and spreadsheets, but they're actually out engaging with the people in their workplace. Um, and I think when you see leaders doing that, it builds a connection that can be a, a, a spark to reframe mental models. Um, and, you know, you've, you've, you've often seen there was this article that, you know, a CEO at an airline did a, a shift um, at as a um, flight attendant. And the conclusion of the CEO was like, well, this is a really hard job. And it's like, yeah, no shit. Um, like we, if you've ever been on a commercial flight, you know how hard those flight attendants work. Um, yeah, it was, it was like an overnight flight too. Yeah. And, and right? again, this is like, not, a, this just, is I'm not, so shocked. I was so tired. Yeah. Yeah. yeah this yeah, is not a call out that CEO. Like I'm, it's, it's, it's yeah. great that leaders are willing to do that, but you know, there are companies like Costco that have been doing that for decades. Um, and they have great benefits, good wages, great customer experience, low turnover compared to the industry. And it's a real testament that there are different ways for businesses to be highly profitable, for shareholders to get the returns that they need, while also treating people really decently and fair. Um, now, it may take a little more effort. It may be a little harder than just some of the financial engineering that you see. But frankly, I think that's where the vast majority of the workforce would much rather work in an environment like that than a place where they feel like their jobs are always at risk, that it's it's always about driving uh, value only in one direction, and it minimizes their role. And I frankly, I think that that sense of living in constant precarity certainly contributes to the mental health crisis, where people just don't feel stable. And if you don't feel stable, you don't have those basic needs met and you don't feel as though you've got some sense of security, of course, it's going to be something that can exacerbate anxiety, can drive a sense of depression, can really contribute to mental health episodes um, or just a general feeling of malaise. Uh, so work plays such a critical part in our lives that if work isn't better for people, I'm not sure we're going to see the mental health crisis recede. Hundred percent. I mean, so it. And so let's go back to that the the social construct contract between employers and employees. You, you just mentioned Costco. You, you mentioned you know that benefits is was is a real cornerstone of the expression of that, and in, in a sense of the expression of intentionality. And, yeah. and so, it, and I see right in the, the the cornerstone of that's the health plan. Yeah. And and, and the health plan has has evolved into a whole thing you know and one you know i i i'm willing to sort of you know expose myself a little bit in that i look at my health plan and, and i try to dig through it and i start to glaze over and i'm just like what is this i mean you know yeah. and it's just if i really really wanted to understand the the benefit afforded to me i would have to spend a, probably a full thoughtful day going through my plan just to understand it. Yeah. Uh, so, so can we talk about that as a part of the, the social contract and how, 
how and why did the health plan evolve to where it is today? I know you're a recovering lawyer. Yeah. I'm going to lean on you here. Yeah. And then, and then are, are there some sort of obvious ways of fixing that? And who's fixing that in, in interesting ways? Yeah, I would, um, I would challenge the notion that we actually have health plans. I would say what we have is we have financial, uh, financialization of healthcare that disproportionately forces individual consumers to pair to bear an ever greater cost and frankly regardless of whether or not claims are going up whether health is improving uh, there are great you know thought leaders and others that um, are really seeing that like even i was at a conference in massachusetts and uh, within the state of massachusetts um, health data has to be shared and reported I, I won't pretend like i know the full things but it was at this conference and person said, Hey, you know, during this period of time, like, you know, healthcare costs went down, like, you know, claims went down yet premiums increased, um, regardless of that. And so I think what, and if you look at what's happening today, you see lots of headlines about anticipated increase of healthcare premiums of 7%. Um, and we've just sort of come to a place where we just kind of accept that, right. It's just going to be that. And oftentimes that increase happens prior to people knowing what, whatever wage adjustments they may have. And so I, I say this because like what we've really what we really ask people to do in the workplace with health plans is to make a financial decision, which requires a, a by its, in some ways in, inherent to that a trade off between where do I spend my money, right? I've got a limited pot of money. Uh, here are the health plan choices. I don't know how much money I'm having next year because I have to make a health plan decision before I know whatever compensation adjustments I'm going to get. And so I hope for the best, and I hope I don't get sick. <laughs> um, and if I do get sick. I sure hope I can afford to pay it. I mean, healthcare is still the number one cause of bankruptcy or medical debt's the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States. Sure. And so I think that we, uh, I don't think you would find any- And 80% of those bankruptcies are, are associated with, with individuals who have health insurance. Well, commercially insured, right. So, yeah. so I don't think anyone can look at those and say, boy, it's really working well. <laughs> this seems to be a really good system. Um, I'm certainly not an expert in terms of what the system should look like or what it needs to look like. But what I can say is that driving decisions to people who are already living in financial precarity and then treating healthcare choices as a financial choice in many regards, I think only deepens the sense of despair that many people feel. And again, back to the research of Carrie Leanne and others where folks that have financial precarity it impacts their cognitive performance, which means it likely impacts their ability to make decisions. And so we've also created this sort of falsehood that uh, people will always act in rational ways. And we'll just give people as much information. If they have the information, then they will act rationally. It's a sort of as if uh, fallacy that you see in a lot, of, um, a lot of this thinking. And the reality is like most people are already struggling. A third of the US workforce makes $15 or less an hour. Um, and then you're asking those folks to navigate a complex financial system, healthcare, where they have to make life and death decisions influenced tremendously by the financial costs. And if we don't think that has a mental health impact on people, um, I just don't know what universe folks are in. So I know I didn't answer your question directly, um, but what I, is like we have to, I think that's, we have to recognize that healthcare through the workplace certainly provides access to health resources, but it is it functions very much like a financial benefit in terms of the way it's structured and in terms of, I think the calculus, a lot of employees have to make when choosing a health plan. 
and often having to choose health plan with complex, you know, jargon, out-of-pocket maximums, coinsurance, in-plan, out-of-plan. I mean, these are all things that um, even as someone who spent their career in and around employee benefits, I had to pause and think like, okay, what does this mean again? And how am I going to do this? And what does this mean? And anticipate what claims I may have next year. I have no idea. I've got three young kids. All I can know is I'm going to burn through my <laughs> out-of-pocket every year. Um, so to me, it's one of these things where we just set people up for failure um, when we overly financialize the health system. I, I have a friend and colleague who's um, CEO of a company called Benary, and, and it, it, we'll have him on this season's uh, Lamont Thurston. Uh, terrific person, great mind. And he, he says something that resonates for me. I mean, there, there's, you know, there's medical stop loss on the plan level, mm-hmm. but what about on the family level? Mm-hmm. You know, when, when you look at 50% of, of Americans, you know, can't, can't cover a $1,000 expense with cash you know, that, that they don't have a medical stop loss, you know what? So, I mean, you know, what, $17,000, whatever the number is, I, I'm not an expert in this space. It's why yeah. we're, it's why we're going to talk about it this year. Cause I mean, yeah. really, this is going to be this season two really is about uh, taking what I think the, one of the most complicated, um, complicated sort of systems challenges that, that the workforce faces this sort of interconnection between, as you put financial precarity and and health, mental health, all of this, and and, and I really appreciate I, I you know framing the health plan as, as as a financial plan more than a health plan. It's it, it's a unique distinction, and I think it's 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 that's worth exploring in and of itself. Um, so I, what do we sort of where do we need to go from here, Matt? I mean, in terms of you know when we're looking at season two, I just want to make sure. We're understanding the terrain enough to sort of thoughtfully kick this off. So, I mean, I, I think you pointed us in some really great directions, you know, the, the connection between financial precarity and mental health and, and no longer and really needing uh, sort of a, a transparent uh, sort of revolution on, on how we, we, we approach that. Because um, in some ways it feels almost existential. Yeah. You know, that, you know, because it, it, it is a full blown epidemic that's not fully discussed. Um, I, I think on the financial plan, health plan level, there's some structural pieces that we're going to need to cover here as well. Um, the the connection between financial precarity and social determinants of health, you know, it, as a through line, you know, and. And, you know, and to recognize that the sort of bottom two thirds of the workforce from a financial health perspective, you know, they're they're at a very, very precarious place in that, you know, what's 10 percent of the workforce is going to have a financial social determinants of health crisis this year? You know, 10 percent of the workforce go hungry. I mean. And these are all connected. And so, you know, what are we missing here or what would you like to see us accomplish at the end of the series of conversations this year yeah. uh, that that uh, that could, you know, hopefully just elevate the overall conversation in the industry? Yeah. Well, certainly, I think those those initial ones are really, really relevant. I think, you know, another place that I'm um, really intrigued by, um, and this is really, I think, more on the the mental health side is just the continuing really strong evidence base around psychedelic assisted therapy for Mm -hmm. severe mental health. And there are some really interesting companies that are starting to position themselves in the event, which I think 
those in the industry anticipate that MDMA assisted therapy is likely to get authorized for use, how health plans may adopt that, I think is a really interesting question because if you think about some of the more severe mental health challenges, PTSD, um, severe depression and anxiety, um, we have tremendous clinical evidence that those can be amazing bulwarks to really help folks that are suffering from just chronic and deep mental health challenges. And so I think that's an avenue where more employers need to get smart about that if they're serious about really addressing mental health challenges. So, I mean, do, do you see that as an area where self-funded plans could help sort of push forward innovation? Yeah, I think self-funded plans. I also think, frankly, um, this may be, this is my own thinking. I don't know if anyone would do this, but, you know, I think health plans are, would be well positioned to do this, but I also think like some of the disability carriers would be well positioned That's interesting. to do this, like providing writers within the disability insurance plan to provide access to treatment. Um, many, many disability vendors, disability plan vendors today um, offer mental health services as a specialty service within the plans. And so this could be just another follow on to that. I think a lot of the stigma around psychedelic assisted therapy is dissipated. Um, and I think people are really aware of the profound impacts that these powerful uh, plants and the therapeutic benefits under the right circumstances can leverage. I think that's a really important point because I think that's a path forward. But, you know, the other the other thing I think is be important, Charles, um, is how do we get the voice of just ordinary working people into the conversation? And, and you know, it's it's great to hear from people like me. Um, I live a very charmed life. I'm very lucky and very fortunate to live the life I get to live. Uh, but I spend a lot of time talking to people who are not as fortunate. Um, and a lot of my thinking is not just informed from the reading of the research and the work of the financial network, but just from conversations with ordinary people um, and not always having to bring an expert on um, to, to gain those insights. And I, I have found that to be a really profound evolution in my own thinking um, of people know what works for them. Um, oftentimes we think that experts are the way to do this. And I, I mean, I think the, the prima facie case of this is if you look at some of the data we've seen in the last couple of years about where HR leaders think the biggest challenge of the workforce is and where workers say their challenges, HR leaders have last always have said, oh, it's mental health, mental health. And workers are saying it's my finances. And, and I think if companies and other thought leaders spent more time talking to people, who are just trying to get through their daily lives, trying to do the best they can. I think there's great wisdom in that. And I think that um, that can be a real efficient way to just cut through the complexity. Matt Desmond in his book, Poverty by America, has a great line. Um, and I'm going to paraphrase here and maybe butcher it, but something along the lines of complexity is the refuge of the privileged, right? It's, it's easy for you and I to see the complexity and to wrestle with the complexity and to pull it apart and do this. But the reality is if someone doesn't make enough money to pay rent or afford health insurance, it's pretty simple for them. They just need to make more money. Like that's not, a, it's not a complex nuanced um, problem for them. So I think sometimes we have a tendency to ignore the voices of people who are living in those experiences to supplant it with all expert opinions. And certainly um, I think experts play a hugely important role because those can be the systems change agents in a lot of ways, but those boy, I hope those. I hope more thought leaders spend time talking to people who are in those circumstances because that's how I think change will ultimately happen. Yeah. I I really appreciate that that final point there because it's something I think what one of the mo more powerful moments uh, in 
that that I've had in terms of you know just looking at financial spillability, financial health was actually at an event that Financial Health Network had sponsored with where you know you brought an Uber driver while they're out of their route into the conversation yeah. and it was it was very um, illuminating and you know as you said sort of cuts through all of the you know th- this is a very very easy topic to talk around. And, and, you know, one of the things I'm proud of that we do here is that we, you know, we take a, you know, a, a, a very structured approach to s- solving challenges at, at their causal root. Yeah. And, and, and it's, um, and, and, and we're improving and innovating and, you know, we have a long way to go like everybody, but um, yeah, insofar that we can keep it simple and real is, I mean, that, that's where we're going to win the day. Indeed. Matt Ball, I, I always, I always really deeply appreciate the time I get to spend with you. And, and, and although I, I know that uh, thought leaders aren't, aren't the, you know, can't solve all the problems. Uh, I, I do know that you are a, you're illuminating the path for the industry. Uh, and, and I deeply appreciate um, that illumination. I deeply appreciate the work that financial health is doing you in particular and, and always appreciate the time we have together. So thank you very much. And you've helped us frame season two. And, <laughs> uh, and I, and, and now I, I'm just looking forward to season three. You helping us kick that off too. Yeah, same. <laughs> well, again, Charles, always a joy to connect with you. I, you know, love the work that you and the FinFit team are doing and, you know, um, not all solution providers get it, but FinFit, in my experience, certainly is one of those that, that does. And so it's great to, uh, it's great to connect with you and the team. Thank you so much.